0: The Lifestylist, episode 192.
1: I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. All right, here's the deal, guys. I've been into the health and wellness scene for 22 plus years now. I've seen a lot of different supplements come and go, a lot of different devices and modalities come and go. One that I found last year in 2017 I feel is never going to go. And that's called red light therapy or photobiomodulation. You can go back to episode number 169 of the Lifestylist podcast and learn all about it, where I interview the founders of Juve. Not just about the Juve products that I'm going to tell you about right now, but just about this therapy altogether. Uh, There are thousands of clinical studies on red light therapy. So if you're serious about your health, it's hard to ignore that research and hard science. This is not woo-woo stuff. I'm into some woo-woo stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But this is seriously effective treatment. Okay, so whether you're trying to improve your skin, reduce joint pain, get better sleep, or really improve your testosterone production, which has been one of the major benefits for me, then red light therapy with a juve is going to be a major investment in your health. Now I use my Juve religiously, but I really miss it when I travel. I mean, the thing's like five feet tall or something. So it sits here in my office when I'm gone and I really miss it. (laughs) I wanna hug my Juve. So that's why I'm super pumped about their new handheld device. It's called the Juve Go and it gives you all the same Juve red light power, but it fits in the palm of your hand so you can take it anywhere. And you can also kind of use it, you know, spot use it like in certain areas. Like for guys, I'll just give you a little hint. If you're trying to raise your testosterone, you use it down in the nether regions. I know it sounds weird, but that's what a lot of the science is actually about. So to check out the Juve units, whether it's the modular ones like I have or the handheld, all you have to do is head over to juve.com forward slash Luke. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Luke. And once you're over there, you're going to see a special bonus the Juve team is uh, hooking you up with if you're a listener. So just use the code LUKE at checkout and you're going to get a free gift. So that's juve.com forward slash LUKE and use the code LUKE at checkout. Let's talk about one of the most badass health products in the world and one that I use quite literally every day, especially when I travel. So Organifi is how I upgrade my nutrition when I'm on the road. Now, every single person should have a green superfood supplement in their life Because if you're anything like me, you got to be honest with yourself. Like, are you actually eating enough vegetables, enough greens? Probably not as much as we might need. So, you know, who has time to like run to the farmer's market and get fresh organic vegetables and greens and juice them and all that stuff? I mean, it's lovely if you, you know, you can roll like that. But let's face it, it's hard to do that at home, let alone when you travel. So that's why I love Organifi. They've got a green juice powder that is legit delicious. It's super easy to mix up. It's not all clumpy and goofy. You know, some powders you try to throw in a, you know, in a glass and stir with a spoon and it won't work. That totally sucks when that happens. It's super annoying. So I love Organifi, and you can find everything they do over at Organifi.com forward slash Luke. If you use the code Lifestylist, you're going to save 20% off your order. That's Organifi with an I. Organifi.com forward slash Luke. Good place to start is the green powder, man. Organifi Green is legit, delicious, super good for you, super energizing, and very easy to travel with if you get the little travel pack. So Organifi.com forward slash Luke is where you want to go. You are now tuned in and turned on by the Lifestylist Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Storey. You can find out just about everything there is to know about me over at a little website called lukestory.com. Today's guest is Brendan Maroda, the director of the award-winning feature-length documentary American Circumcision. And let me tell you, like some of the other episodes we've been throwing out here in 2019, this one is a mind-blowing conversation, not only due to the rather controversial topic of circumcision, which I like to refer to as just what it is, male genital mutilation, but because Brendan is very courageous, passionate, and knowledgeable. Here's what we talk about in this episode, why Brendan first started investigating circumcision, the process of foreskin restoration that some men are undergoing today which allows them to partially restore the part of their body that has been taken. How society turns men into success objects and diminishes anything viewed as complaining. How circumcision deprives men of multiple orgasms and much more pleasure. The medical and religious history of circumcision. The fact that circumcision as a practice began as a cure for masturbation meant to hinder sexual development and pleasure. The fake AIDS testing done to prove this practice as legitimate. What the medical procedure is like for baby boys. Spoiler alert, it's horrific. The PTSD and trauma that many men likely experience due to going through this painful surgery. Breaking down masculinity and toxic masculinity and the role of empathy for men. The backlash against American circumcision and other similar films such as The Red Pill. So today's show is one that I've been wanting to cover for a long, long time. Uh, My friend Daniel Vitalis did a couple episodes of the podcast he used to have, which by the way, it's still up, you should go listen to it, called Rewild Yourself. And uh, this was something I never really thought about as an American man. uh, It's just kind of the way it was when you're a baby and you grow up that way and you don't really give it much consideration. And thanks to Daniel, I started really considering this and many other practices in our quote unquote, civilized modern life. And I uh, found this one to just be deeply disturbing. And I was so thrilled to encounter Brendan, I think first through Twitter and then watching his film on Netflix, by the way, obviously we're going to talk about his film, but right up front, I want to say you got to go check out this film uh, on Netflix, or wherever you can find it. And, uh, I was just stoked to find someone who was really able to give you know some some real uh, background on this and really do his due diligence and research on this practice and where it came from and why we do it and why we think we do it and uh, the implications to men and society in general. So I'm really stoked to deliver this episode. It's somewhat controversial. So obviously, if if you have kids in the room, I, I don't think it's particularly vulgar or profanity-laden, but it is you know somewhat of a mature topic. So keep that in mind. And if you've had kids, I just want to say, listen, no guilt. You know, We all do the best we can. We make decisions based on um, the information we're given at that time. If you're a parent to be or plan to be, I highly suggest that you listen to this. Uh, you can, of course, follow your own judgment and intuition, but I think there's another side of the story here that you probably won't hear down at the local hospital. You know what I'm saying? So I encourage you to listen with an open heart and an open mind, and uh, hopefully this will have an impact on future generations of men to come. Uh, One thing I'd like to talk about before we jump into this uh, episode is Friday's bonus show, The Fine Art of Self-Care and Stress Recovery, which is a recording of a live talk I did at the Neil Strauss Biohacking Intensive here in LA a few months ago. And that's where I give every little secret of everything I do to take care of myself in this wild and crazy world that I live in. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of benefit there. So that's a bonus bootleg broadcast this Friday. Then next Tuesday, none other than Neil Strauss himself will be here on the show for like a two hour podcast, all about raising conscious kids, the new parenting paradigm. Neil's not only a great author and a great guy and a good friend, but he's one of the best parents I've ever seen in my life. Like he's literally obsessed with being the best dad ever. And it's really encouraging and inspiring to me. So I, I bugged him and bugged him until he finally let me sit down and just ask him everything he's learned so far in the first couple of years of raising his boy 10. And that is one you don't want to miss. If you don't want to miss any of these episodes, it's real easy. Just subscribe to the podcast and each and every episode will be magically downloaded to your device or computer. I have an upcoming event I'd love to plug and that is the High Love Experience which I have formerly done at Rama in New York City and just a couple of days ago did here in LA in Venice and uh, very well received, super fun, super lit. And now I'm taking this little road show to Miami. That's right. Uh, Saturday, March 30th, I will be at Sacred Space Miami. So if you're on that coast, please come say hi and spend some time with me and a bunch of other A fantastic lifestylist podcast listeners. If you want to get your tickets, do this. Go to lukestory.com forward slash events. That's lukestory.com forward slash events. And I hope to see you March thirtieth at Sacred Space, Miami. And without further delay or further ado, my friends, I welcome to the show, Mr. Brendan Moroda. Dude, welcome to the show, Brendan. Really good to see you here on the uh, computer I'm staring at.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm glad we're able to do video too. I did one last night and uh, the guy was in New Zealand. And you know, obviously, I I was forced to use Skype uh, to do the interview, but it was so difficult to take nonverbal cues. So I found myself... We kept kind of stepping on each other and interrupting each other because you can't tell when someone has kind of set back in their seat and is now taking a pause to allow you to take advantage of the beat and jump in. So glad I can see your mug. Yeah. So dude, we're going to be talking about uh, the practice of... (laughs) I mean, people call it circumcision. I just call it what it is, male genital mutilation. And you know, I don't want to dance around the topic. Uh, You've done a fantastic film on this. I've been waiting for someone to put out some content on this particular topic that's uh, accessible. Your film very much is. I want to know what first led you to go down this path. It's a very niche sort of health and social topic to tackle. And not only that, as I'm sure we're going to find somewhat challenging, you know, uh, to present to the public because it's something that people have very strong opinions about. So how did you get involved in the whole topic of circumcision
0: to begin with? So I think like most Americans, it was not something that I thought about. Um, and when it came up in my mind, it was sort of like, well, that already happened. So and there's nothing I can do about it. So why think about it? Which is weird if, you know, because this issue affects people on such a scale, in such a personal way. I mean, this affects every man in America, every partner of a man, every parent and child. And yet we don't talk about it. And I, and I think if there was another issue that affected people that profoundly, that deeply, that personally, because it's not just affecting us on a social level. It's on the most personal level possible, right? Your body and the most personal part of your body. Um, if there was another issue that affected people like that, we would talk about it all the time. It would be seen as the most important issue in the country. It would be seen as on par with all of the other big issues that people talk about, like gun control and politics and uh, social issues and things like that. But because it has this sort of taboo nature, I think because it hits people so personally, they're afraid to talk about it. And and that's how I was even when I first learned about it. I went through a period in my life where I was letting go of a lot of childhood patterns that didn't serve me. I was um, doing a lot of what you might call inner work. Um, and when I would run across this topic, like I said, I always thought, hmm, there's nothing I can do about that now. And it makes me kind of uncomfortable. And it also didn't seem like something I could change. You know, with, when it comes to my beliefs or my patterns or even things like my diet or health, I, I can make a lot of changes there. And I'm comfortable doing that. But this one was like, well, I don't know. If, I, you know I didn't feel like I had control. And and you know, shocking a film director with control issues. <laughs> and I should surprise no one who's worked in yeah, the film industry. a bit of that. Um, but, uh, you know, I just sort of thought, well, I'll just out of sight, out of mind. But at the time, I I had a meditation practice, and I've had one since I was 18. And the type of meditation I practice is Zazen, Zen meditation, which involves just sitting and being present with whatever's there. There's nothing mystical about it. It's just whatever you're you're feeling, whatever comes into your mind, you just watch it and notice it. Uh, It's similar to what's now sometimes called mindfulness meditation. And during meditation, I had the word circumcision come into my mind. And it gave me this sort of cold feeling in the body. And I kind of felt all my energy drain down to my belt. I thought, that's really weird. But some part of my consciousness clearly wants me to look at this. So, you know, I pay attention to what comes up in that space. So I started researching when I got home. And one of the first things I found was something called foreskin restoration, where men take the remaining skin and stretch it over time so that they have a covering of that part of the body again. And I thought, okay, you know, you don't get all of the nerve endings back. You don't get all of the the functions and form of the foreskin back, but you get some. And I thought, that's interesting. My whole life I've been told there's nothing you can do about this. What else have I been told that isn't true? And so that led to, you know, just going down the the wormhole of learning everything I could about this and what one of my interview subjects calls the obsessive epiphany, which is the moment when you realize there's more to this issue than your culture has presented. You start Reading everything about it and and watching everything you can on it and learning everything you can and that research eventually that was your red pill (laughs) yeah you know I always I always wonder if I should even share that story because it's a bit of a strange one and I don't think that I think when people ask that they're sort of curious they're they're really asking is why should I care about this issue like they don't necessarily care about me or my personal story but I, I would say that. It it's it's going to affect everyone in a really personal way. I mean, it's funny because people will ask me, why did you do a film about that? Why would you talk about that? And then after we talk about it for like, you know, three or four minutes, they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this story, but, and then something really personal will come out. Or, you know, I bet you've never heard anything like this, but, and then something that one of their friends had told them will come out. And what was interesting as I started working on this film is that a lot of people would tell me the same stories. And they didn't realize they weren't the only one who felt that way or they weren't the only one who'd had that experience. Um, And so some of those stories are represented in the film. But I think that people have feelings about it. They've just never been given permission to share or talk about those feelings. And so part of the goal of the film is giving people permission to share their story. And
1: and, um, just so you know, I don't think most people listening to this podcast would find um, the method by which you came about this realization strange. You know, I interview a lot of meditation teachers and talk a lot about metaphysics and spirituality. and, And I think it's quite common that we have these awakenings and epiphanies at different stages of our spiritual development. And to me, that's kind of the whole point, you know, is to get a more zoomed out comprehensive perspective on the human life experience. You know, I, I had a, a similar kind of thing. Um, my, my first kind of red pill moment, which just, you know, is obviously for those, well, not obviously for those that don't understand, otherwise they wouldn't explain it. But from the matrix, you know, it's like, once you know this, there's no unknowing it. And for me, it was back in 9-11 when the first little YouTube videos started coming out about the, um, you know, the 9-11 plane wrecks and all this stuff. The very first one was just about the Pentagon. And it was like, hey, have you ever noticed that there's no plane at the Pentagon? I was like, yeah, there is. It was on the news. I, the, Of course, the news said that a plane crashed there. And then it's like, yeah, but did you ever see the plane? And so on and so on. And it, it was maybe a 12 or 15 minute video. By the end of it, I'm going, um... What the fuck? There's no plane there. <laughs> you know And you can go back and research this now. And you know, of course, if you're if you're like a 9/11 truther or get one of those labels, people think you're nuts. But if you really look into some of these historical events or just cultural phenomena, you find, oh wow, the story is a lot different. I don't know what the answer to the story is, exactly, but I know that the official narrative on so many things is actually just incorrect or incomplete, or in some cases um, deliberately misleading. So um, I totally understand that perspective. And I think I was just born with a really curious mind. And so when I come across something like this, where there's some degree of deception or or misinformation, I become also pretty obsessed about sharing these things uh, with the audience. And that's one of the purposes for me of having the podcast is just saying, hey, let's take a look at something without just blindly going along with it. It's it's part of my rebellious teenage rock and roll punk rock kind of attitude that I haven't let go of at 48 years old. And part of it's just like, God, so many people in human history have been harmed because they went along with the status quo and didn't question authority. And so I like to um, consciously, hopefully, question authority and look at things from a different angle. So I, I totally get that perspective. And I applaud you for having the courage to tackle something that's so taboo that people don't want to address. And there's another thing about it too. And then, you know, obviously there's much more to cover from your end, but I've noticed recently as your film started to get more traction, you know, just hit Netflix, what, a few days ago, which congratulations. So I follow you on Twitter and you've been saying, Hey, you know, my film's now on Netflix. It's awesome. I'm getting, you know, a lot of reactions, some positive, some negative. And I'm looking at like the comments on your posts, And it's so strange because you'd think that, I don't know what you'd think, but I think because men are the one that are directly the ones directly affected by this particular practice, that men would be like, "Oh my God, I'm on board. This sucks. We shouldn't be doing this," and kind of take the side of the anti-cutting um, movement, and that women would be sort of neutral about it. And what I've noticed just as an observer is that women seem to be like, "Oh my God, this is horrific. We must stop this now," and they're really taking the side of these baby boys. And a lot of the people that are negatively reacting to it are men and are kind of like, don't be a wuss, like whatever, it doesn't hurt. You don't even remember that shit. And I'm going, why are the men in defense of something that is so directly, uh, such a direct assault on their gender? It's, It's just psychologically so weird. And to me, it's almost like, it's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome thing. But I haven't got my head around it because it's only been a couple of days since I've been observing this phenomenon on Twitter. What's what's the reaction to the film been like? And is my perception correct in that it's more men that are not on board with this perspective that we shouldn't be doing this?
0: So I'm going to wind my way into answering that because I think to understand why people do certain things, you sometimes have to look a little bit below the surface. Um, I'll, I'll preface this with I'm I'm not a 911 truther. It's not really something I've explored. But I have a lot of friends who have all sorts of different perspectives on things like that. I have friends who believe in, you know, really strange UFO conspiracy theories or people who are very politically uh, right wing or very politically left wing. And I'm comfortable talking to people who, who have a different perspective than me. But one of the things I've noticed with this issue is that when you share a different perspective, people will get very defensive and you'll see the shoulders start to raise up or you'll have men feel the need to blurt out. Well, I'm fine with my penis. Like it just comes out really quickly. It's just like like a squid shooting its ink as a defense mechanism. And and it's always like, I'm like, I, I didn't ask you about that. I'm not really, that's not really something I was thinking about. That's not really if it's something I wanted to know. Um, but I think it comes from the fact that certain information challenges people's ego structure in a certain way. So if you have a belief that your self worth, that your masculinity, that your value as a man is in some way tied to your genitals and your body. And there's so many metaphors in our culture that are like, you know, a dick measuring competition or, um, that's, that are basically about the idea that the size and, and ability there is somehow related to a man's self worth that I think if you suggest that there's anything wrong with that part of the body or anything wrong even tangentially with that part of a man's body, they're going to be very defensive because it's it's part of their ego structure and that's threatened in some way. Whereas women don't have that defensiveness. They haven't had this happen to them. Um, if you were to make a, any comment about a woman's body, about her her weight or her breasts being the wrong size or her body being you know in any way wrong... Um, I think women would be equally defensive. And you see women have had strong campaigns around that, around, you know, all bodies are beautiful, um, beautiful at every size, things like that. And men have not gone through that yet because to a certain degree, uh, many of our cultural attitudes about men are that men need to sacrifice their well-being for the good of the tribe. So we turn women into sex objects. And say that their value comes from their physical beauty and attractiveness. But we turn men into success objects and say that their value comes from their ability to be successful at things and win value for the tribe, for their community. And because of that, any complaining from men, any any comment from men that somehow something the tribe is doing to them is not okay is seen as weakness and it's interesting because i actually think that that is the opposite of masculinity telling men that that losing a, you know some part of their body is okay i think that there's an incredible bravery in men being willing to stand up to their tribe and sacrifice their emotional safety for the good of the tribe and and we've traditionally framed masculinity as just sacrificing that that physical safety which i do th- I think there is value in, I think there's a lot of honor and value in men who are willing to do things like the military or police or firefighting, things where they put their safety on the line to protect others. But I also think there's a lot of value in men who are willing to sacrifice their emotional safety and willing to explore difficult or controversial topics that might risk being ostracized from the tribe for the good of the tribe for the good of their future children and future generations. And, and that requires a lot of bravery because we socially reward men who sacrifice their physical safety for for children and for the tribe. But we don't socially reward men who sacrifice their emotional safety for the tribe. In fact, we, used to, we often punish them. Uh, so you have to be willing to do the right thing even when you won't be treated like you're doing the right thing to do that. And not a lot of people are willing to do that. And and on top of that, you have to face all the emotional and ego and internal cognitive dissonance that comes with admitting that there is something that happened to you. I think you can see it a lot in the language that we have around circumcision. Men will say, I am circumcised. Like it's an identity. You know, the same way you'd say, I am male or I'm white or I'm black. Like it's something you are. And in reality it's probably better framed as something that happened to you. I was circumcised. Circumcision is something that happened to me. And I think if people were to shift it from a part of their identity and ego structure to simply a thing that happened to them, then there might be other values that wow, are more dude. aligned well to their said perspective.
1: Wow, and fascinating. That's a really interesting social commentary. And I uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, as I started to approach this topic myself just in a very, um, I mean, not in any intensive way, but just, you know, listening to a little bit here and there, watching a video, talking to a few people about it, um, not really having um, dove too deeply into it, it started to kind of change my perspective. And then when I saw your film, just subjectively completely changed my whole world because Growing up in the uh, culture that I did, born in 1970, you know, living in California, I mean, I wasn't really big into sports, so I didn't spend a lot of time in the locker room, but, you know, I was exposed to pornography pretty early on and, you know, whatever you go skinny dipping, you run around. I mean, I've seen my share of penises just from being alive and the vast majority of them that I've seen in whatever media form or real life form have looked like mine. So as a kid growing up, you know, you go to the locker room and take a shower or whatever. Or you go skinny dipping in a creek or whatever it was, uh, you know, I had the feeling, oh, thank God I was circumcised and I look like the other boys and other men. I don't want to be, you know, the outcast. And then even in our culture, and I really, you know, for any women watching this or listening to this, oh my God, please fucking stop this. But you hear women making comments about men that are intact or, or, um, that have not been circumcised and kind of making fun of them for looking the way that they look, which is the way that God created them, which is totally bizarre, but it kind of speaks to the brainwashing uh, of the opposite sex in many cases. But I grew up sort of being relieved that I wasn't like one of those hippie kids that I saw here and there that was uncircumcised and was then like had a weird um, anatomical feature. And... How how that's been transformed since seeing your film, and especially speaking to some of the more graphic scenes in the film where you actually get to see this procedure taking place, I walked away from that feeling... I mean, my relationship to my own body will not ever be the same now. It's hard to explain um, for someone that hasn't had the visceral experience, male or female, of kind of living your life with one perspective, like, oh, cool, I'm like everyone else. I'm quote-unquote normal, you know, getting to a deeper understanding of this particular issue, and then going, wait, I'm actually not normal. I'm deformed, and I, you know, I, I hesitated on whether or not I wanted to talk about this. And I, you know, I'm trying to, I'll try to say it in a way that's tactful. It's kind of embarrassing to just publicly talk about this. But when I, after the film, when I, um, <laughs> when I went to have relations with myself, uh, it was really fucking weird. And I almost kind of didn't want to do it. I couldn't really complete the exercise. It was strange, dude, for lack of a better term. And um, and it also came at a time when I had been celibate for a really long time, which I still have for other reasons. You know, just kind of living a monastic lifestyle for a while and, and doing some inner work, as you alluded to earlier. Kind of coming out of that now and anticipate that I will have sex soon. So the only kind of sex I've had in a year and a half has been here and there with myself just out of boredom or whatever, just want to go to sleep, you know, <laughs> something like that. But I've not been sexually active per se. So it's a really weird time to have been uh, exposed to this information and kind of reexamining my sexuality in general, just globally within my own life. And then also anatomically going, huh, wow, I haven't, you know, I haven't been sexual. And now I'm looking at at doing so again after a break. And having a completely different relationship with my body as a result of getting new information, and so it 's one of those things it 's like it really is a red pill moment because a part of me is like, oh, I wish I never would have seen that that scene in the movie or been exposed to this in kind of a graphic reality check way because I could just go back and put my head in the sand and just carry on with my physicality and experiencing my own sexuality in the ways in which I have for 48 or I guess I didn't experience much young but however many years I've been sexually active so it really had a profound effect on me and I'm I'm kind of curious as to what it's going to be like to re-enter you know becoming sexually active and having a deeper or a different understanding of what what's happened to my body it's just it's a very strange experience so I don't know if there's a, a, a question in there. It's, it's, it's kind of just more of a, a testimonial as to the power of getting a new perspective. Um, I am curious though, and I am wanting to get into the history and like, of course, the whole practice, but have you gotten feedback from men like me that thought everything was cool and now they're going like, wait, what the fuck happened to me? <laughs> you know?
0: I, I, I think that's a really common experience in the anti movement. I've heard a number of men say that. But I also think that if you're willing to go through the pain of realizing that, of actually looking at what's there and what's been done, there's going to be a better experience on the other end. So, one of the um, accounts that I, one of the people I really admire in the film is Soraya Miri, who helped get the, um, Federal law against female genital mutilation passed, which has now been overturned, but that's another story. Um, And she's a a circumcised woman. She received um, the most extreme form of female circumcision there is. It's, without getting too graphic, some people refer to it as the Barbie doll cut. Um, And she, in her book, The Girl with Three Legs, talks about having to learn to love her body again and love her sexuality and get in touch with that after having had so many traumatic experiences. So I think if you're really struggling with it, I would highly recommend reading her work because she went through something that I think most people would consider more extreme and has come out on the other end one of the most, you know, loving, wonderful people that I know. Uh, And I'll also say, you know, one of the things we talk about in the film is that women have a lot of knowledge of their bodies and they know that there's different parts of the body you can get pleasure from and that an orgasm from the clitoris is different than an orgasm from the g-spot and men don't have that because the other places we would receive that pleasure and those orgasms have been removed so something that you experience a feeling from the ridged band of the foreskin is different than what you might experience from the head of the penis or the frenulum and i think if you're willing to actually explore what you have rather than Doing what most men do, the general sort of, well, it feels good on my penis, right? And actually see like, okay, how does it feel on the remaining foreskin? How does it feel on the frenulum? How does it feel on the head that you'll, and see actually what you have, you'll become more in touch with the pleasure you have. And later when you find acceptance around your body, around what you have, then you'll be able to experience more of what's there, and, and yes, it is less than you might have had if you had been left intact. But you'll be more connected to it and more in touch with it. But in order to do that, I think you have to be willing to feel the whatever trauma or pain there might exist around what actually happened. I mean, this is the healing process that you have to you have to fully accept what's there, and then. Uh, do what you can to shift that feeling and perspective while fully accepting it and being fully present with it and being okay. You know, that's the other thing about the healing process is that you have to be okay with it, feeling the way that it feels for as long as it needs to. People don't heal if you're with them like, okay, I'm going to be present (laughs) with your feelings and change, change. Why are you not changing? I'm being present with you. You need to change. Like, uh, you know, I'm feeling a little judged right now. Um, so I think if you're willing to be present with it, it's better. On it. And, and that's been my experience that I feel like when it comes to my body and sexuality, I feel more connected to it now. Because if you've experienced any kind of trauma, there's a tendency to disassociate from the body and to um, not be fully present in it. And if you're willing to feel what's there, the bad parts. Awesome. we are also able that's to feel the good more as well.
1: Any type of trauma that you're trying to overcome. I've experienced that on different levels. So thank you for reminding me of that and helping me to apply that to this situation. I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm doing. And it's I've gotten a little more used to the idea, but there was definitely an initial shock of like, uh, looking down, kind of like, what what do I do? What do I do with this? You know? Um, let's get into a little bit of the 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 history here because as I've mentioned this, I was actually speaking to a couple yesterday, some friends of mine. uh, One is a man from Denmark. He didn't really have a lot to say about it. Uh, But the other woman was from Morocco. and She was Muslim. And she's explained to me how this happens in her culture where if I got the story right that she was telling me, her accent was a little thick. But she was saying that it's months or even a few years into a boy's life in, in her culture, at least in her family, where they'll They'll take the boy away and pretend like they're taking him on, you know, a fun little trip or to go shopping for toys or whatever it is, go have it done and then bring him back. And they trick the women in the family into, um, they don't want to alert the women that it's going to happen because the women will fight against it. And they, the men just take the boys away and go do it and come back. And, you know, she said, yeah, it's part of my culture, but I always thought it was really messed up. And it's, it's traumatic for the mothers and the aunties and the grannies and all of us women are going like, why the hell are we doing this? So it's, it's interesting to, um, to talk to people about it but even though she personally wasn't a fan she's like well it's it's a religious thing so you can't touch that kind of you know and i think some of the pushback i've got when i bring it up right now i have a couple of friends that are pretty devout jews and they're just like what are you kidding me of course you do that it's not even like an option to talk about it it's not at all it's not on the table it's just you know and i said dude you know because one of them recently got married and wants to have kids and another one um and they both have Jewish um, you know, a, a Jewish girlfriends or fiance. And um, and the other one has a Jewish girlfriend and I've talked to him about it. And he wants to have a family and all that. So I'm like, are you going to circumcise? And they're like, yeah. And I go, dude, do you know like how fucked up this is? And they're just like, what are you talking about? It totally is not... We can't have the conversation. So I'm not a controlling person, hopefully. So I'm going to let them do what they want to do. But I I do like to just introduce people into a different perspective. So historically in terms of, I guess, let's cover kind of the religious um, end of it first and then talk about the medical end, which is fascinating because from your perspective of your film, the medical end doesn't seem to have any validity whatsoever. So give me a little bit of the the history um, as it pertains to the religious practices.
0: So you're right that in Islam, it's usually done when the child is older, around age six. And in, in it's often on both men and women. So female circumcision is very common in the Islamic world. And there are no cultures that practice female circumcision that don't also practice male circumcision. Um, and it, uh, hearing those men speak, it's a different wound. It's a different wound when you can remember the experience. And there's often this f- really deep feeling of betrayal of, uh, I thought you guys loved me and then you did this thing. And so they have the experience of having their family be very loving to them up until age six. And then this thing happens and it's like, whoa, what was that? And it's often treated as a celebration. So there's this mismatch happening of the, what the child feels versus everyone around him. Like, yay, we're so happy for you. You're a man now, you know? Um, and in Judaism, it goes back to Abraham. So the story in Genesis where God tells a... Uh, 99-year-old man, that he's going to give him lots of progeny if he does this, this act of sacrifice, essentially. And, and in the context of the, the Jewish story, the biblical story, it is a blood sacrifice. So it's a time period when they would sacrifice animals to God, they would have a temple, and they would sacrifice things uh, later in the biblical story. And so this is to be performed... On every male child and your slaves. And it's interesting because when you look at, you know, people say you absolutely cannot question religion. You cannot question that statement if it's in the book and you have to be able, you have to do it. Um, Christians don't have to do it, by the way. Christianity is very much against circumcision, but modern Christians don't know that. But they say, well, you absolutely cannot question this text. But in the verse that says you should do circumcision, it also says you should do the procedure. To your slaves. So, in other words, the verse is saying, we, "Okay, we all know slavery is good, but let me tell you about this new idea we have, right?" Uh, and so, it seems like you can question part of that verse, right? We all we all think that slavery is bad. We all question that practice. Yet, this other practice that's in the same verse, we're supposed to accept, you know, as absolute truth. So, a little bit of a double standard there. And then on top of that, the type of circumcision that was practiced in Abrahamic times is different than the one that we practice now. So we're not even practicing biblical circumcision. We're practicing an updated version. In the Hellenistic period, um, it used to be that you would remove just the very tip of the ridge band. So the part above the head of the penis. So the head of the penis would still mostly be covered because you'd have the um, foreskin over top of it, right? You just would be missing the very tip of it. And... In the Hellenistic period, uh, there were Jewish men who wanted to compete in Roman athletic events. And so Roman athletic events were done in the nude. And these Jewish men wanted to fit in with the intact Roman men. And it would have been seen as lewd to have the head of your penis exposed in these events. Because the only time that would happen is if you had an erection, right? So they would pin the, foreskin fo- the remaining foreskin forward so that that part of the body was covered. And the rabbis did not like this because the whole point of circumcision is to differentiate Jewish men and make them look different in some way. So they changed the procedure to include removing all of the foreskin, everything, not just the very tip, but everything above the head of the penis. And that is the procedure, the version that, is, that was later adapted into the American medical practice. So when people say, well, well you have to do circumcision because it's in the Bible, The version of circumcision that we practice today is not the version that's in the Bible. It's not the version that uh, God told Abraham to do in the story in Genesis. And on top of that, there are people who will say, well, you have to do it because um, I'm a Christian and it's in the Bible. And, And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls circumcision an abomination and genital mutilation and says you don't have to do it. Because in Christianity... Christ was the last blood sacrifice. He died for everyone's sins so that you don't need to perform sacrifices anymore. And it would be as absurd as a Christian saying, well, there's these animal sacrifices in the temple, so I need to go slaughter a calf. The the whole point of, of Christ's death is that you don't need to perform ritual sacrifices and you certainly don't need to perform ritual blood sacrifices on your children, which is what that is in the Genesis story. So there's a lot of misunderstandings not just about circumcision, but about even how it relates to the Bible, how it relates to religion, um, and the the whole process. And, and, and on top of that, Judaism... I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on the complexities of Jewish theology, but there are movements against circumcision within Judaism. There is something called... Uh, um, the Brit Shalom, which is a version of the naming ceremony that does not involve cutting. There are a lot of Jewish scholars who have made arguments that it isn't something that Jews need to do, that we don't still practice the the slaughters and animal sacrifices in the temple. Why would we need to keep this? This is in the same category. And I'm not going to get into, you know, those theological arguments are very complex and, and won't apply to people outside the faith. But I think that for many Jewish people, uh, they do it for the same reason that Americans do. It's just what everyone does, right? And then on top of that, there's this little bonus of like, well, you know, and also it's uh, part of our culture. But it's interesting because even when you hear people argue religious circumcision, it's never just religious circumcision. Like just the fact that it's in the Bible or it's in the Torah is not enough for people. It's always, well, it's religious and it's cleaner or it's religious and it's better somehow or it's healthier. Because I think people understand that just, you know, God told me to go touch this child is not enough for most people. They're going to go, I've got some questions about that. Um, And if someone were to propose it today, and you say, well, I I need to hold down this child and cut part of his body off because God told me to in a vision, we would treat them very differently than we treat uh, orthodox religious circumcision now.
1: You mentioned very good comprehensive overview there. You mentioned... uh the practice of circumcising slaves throughout history. And I'm guessing that that would be having to do with um, having them not fornicate, but rather keep working, you know, because if you're cutting off the pleasure centers of males and or females, there's going to be less sexual activity in terms of the history and slavery and the history and religions. Is there a mechanism of control at play there where you're going to derive less pleasure and be less prone to running around masturbating all day and instead of being a good altar boy or whatever. you know, Is there is there an effort to control the human sexuality there that is um, present as well?
0: So different people are going to give you different theories on this, but there absolutely have been scholars throughout history who have said that the purpose of circumcision is to reduce male sexuality. If you look at, uh, I believe it's Moses Masmodides, I might be mispronouncing that slightly, um, a Jewish scholar who's who wrote extensively about this subject, he expressly says that. it's the, the point of it is to diminish male sexuality. And if you look at the origins in American medical practice, it originally was to decrease male sexual pleasure. Circumcision began as a medical practice in America during the Victorian era when Victorian doctors believed that masturbation was the cause of a great many social ills a great many health problems, and that if you could remove the most pleasurable part of a man's body, the foreskin, that you would decrease this harmful practice. And so circumcision began as a a cure for masturbation. And it was very deliberately to harm the child's future sexuality and decrease the amount of pleasure he could feel. So at least in America, that was that was the origin of it, and you, and that that narrative just dropped out after the '60s because they were still practicing it. But after the '60s and '70s, sexual pleasure was a good thing, right? There was the sexual revolution, and so now that wasn't good marketing. And now they just said, well, doesn't seem to make a difference at all. Well, even though their their marketing, their not not just their their research, but their marketing for the previous years had all said it's designed to reduce sexuality.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, one of the, the most impactful parts of your film was the guy who, I forget his name, but he's sort of a speaker performance artist, uh, type of character and, um, apparently demonstrates and, and, um, explains how he's able to have all of these different types of orgasms because he's intact. And, Hearing him describe the experience that he had, I'm going like, I've never felt anything like that. I have no idea. You know, multiple orgasms, all different types of orgasms, akin to what a really tuned-in female would report. You know, being able to have, as you said, um, not only uh, clitoral orgasms, but G-spot or um, cervical orgasms, et cetera. And he sort of explained his anatomy in the same way. And I'm sitting there going, um, damn, that sounds awesome. (laughs) You know, I'm never going to have that
0: experience. Uh, what, do you happen to remember that guy's name? The, um, one people can look at Glenn calendar in the film, the Canadian foreskin awareness project. And uh, yes, he, he is able to do that. And there's a video of, you know, it's funny because a lot of people say, that's not possible. Like, well, there's a video on the internet. If you're really curious, if you really actually want to see that, I, I don't show it in the film for your more, uh, you probably don't have a lot of people who are squeamish about sexuality watching your podcast. But for those who are, it's it's not on screen, just FYI. Um, but yeah, it's again, it's similar to women. There are women who can't orgasm and there are women who can have dozens of orgasms. And it just depends on how tuned into her body a woman is. And, and I don't think a lot of, even a lot of intact men can because we don't talk about the male body. We're not aware of it. We don't actually explore it that way and when men do for most men at least in the west in america there's a scar on that part of the body that changes the experience in some way and i do think that there is some possibility of getting that back in the sense that you know there's there's people now who are talking about um force so there's foreskin restoration where men stretch the remaining skin over time and the men who've done that report that they're able to have full body orgasms again, that it is a very significant difference. Um, There's one man who's sort of a legend in the foreskin restoration community who was circumcised as an adult. So he'd had sex intact, uh, got circumcised, and then realized the difference and restored his foreskin, stretched it over time. So he's had sex all three ways. And what he said is that circumcision... Or, or that sex intact was a 10, circumcised was a three, but restored was a seven. So those complex nerve endings in the ridge band and in the foreskin, you can't get back, but you can get the covering back. And that covering comes with the gliding ability over the head of the penis. And so th- there is a significant difference. There's also now people talking about what's called foreskin regeneration, which would be using regenerative medicine and stem cells and things like that to regrow the part of the body fully. So there's been people who've had like, you know, their finger cut off or even their hand cut off and regrown it with stem cells and things like that. There's a new regenerative medicine field. And so people are talking about, well, why couldn't you do that with the foreskin? This is a, this is a, it's even a really good opportunity for people who are interested in the technology to test it because there's not a lot of amputee victims you can test this on, but there's a lot of men who've been circumcised, right? And I think that not only is this technology possible, but I think it might even already exist. You know, there's a team in Hong Kong that regenerated a female vagina fully, the whole inside of it. Um, There's a lot of people who are doing research like that. It's just not FDA approved, clinically tested in the United States. But I'm fairly certain that that technology is already out there now. But men are only going to get that when there's enough collective consciousness and interest in the technology to bring it to market. And so... I think that if, similar to the healing we talked about earlier, if men are willing to feel their feelings around this issue and speak out on it, they'll get maybe even the full healing they want and actually be able to experience that part of the body again. But we're going to have to be willing to go through the pain period of actually feeling those feelings and exploring them in order to create the consciousness necessary to have full regeneration and and the technology that would allow men to get the full part of their body back.
1: I immediately of course, sent your film to my closest friends, uh or at least my male friends, for starters. now it'll be going to thousands of friends, maybe twenty five thousand <laughs> within a few days um, but, excellent uh, one of my friends i had i sent it to him and i didn't you know he's he's not a big emailer, but I emailed him the link and then i didn't hear anything back and then I saw him a couple of weeks ago. he will remain anonymous you know for his own um privacy right. purposes, but I was right. like, dude what would you think of that film he's like are you kidding me? He's like, I'm already starting to... um, what He's starting to stretch the skin. What do you call it? <laughs> restoration. The, uh, yeah, rest, he's like, oh, I'm doing restoration, bro. Every day, twice a day. It's like a biohack. You know, he's, he's super... And I haven't checked with him recently. I haven't seen him in a minute. He's a very close friend of mine. We just, you know, we're both busy. But he was, he was horrified and immediately got into the practice and went down the rabbit hole of all of the different restoration techniques of stretching and this and that. So I, I haven't gotten a report from him, but um, it definitely has that effect getting this information on some men are like wait what you can have what one thing that i was curious about in exploring this was you know guys as, as i said i think just growing up in the 70s and 80s and i remember when the betamax was invented and then of course the vcr i, mean, I was exposed to pornography early on cuz i was a mischievous kid and would rifle through everyone's parents shit and if there was porno tapes in there i would watch them you know and so my i mean of course subjectively i've had uh, a, a wide variety of different types of sexual experiences from very intimate and loving and slow and sensitive types to full-on, you know, banging it out. But I, I wonder how our our human sexuality uh, culturally has been shaped just by the anatomic changes to most of our penises. You know, when you watch pornography, it's like freaking jackhammer time. You know, there's not a lot of sensitivity and there's a lot of this sort of... um borderline abusive domination and just pounding away and pounding away kind of approach to sex. And, you know, maybe that's what makes for good porn because it's sort of, you know, beyond the norm and that makes it more, um, you know, the, more, the extremity of it makes it more of a turn on and things like that, I'm sure. But I'm just talking about like the actual mechanics of, um, a phallic shaped thing going into an orifice and and the mechanics of that, how it's changed when the skin would that would be lubricating and supporting that process in a more natural way. And I wonder how much our sexuality has been changed. You know, the way that we think about intercourse and the way that we do it because of the lack of sensitivity.
0: I think that our sexuality has absolutely been changed by this. It's hard to extrapolate how much of that has happened in porn because porn is obviously not real. There's a lot of things that porn actors do that are not that even they will say this is doesn't actually feel good or this isn't the way that you would want to have sex, it's just what looks good on camera, yeah.
1: <laughs> right? Right? Um, I mean, like slow, passionate lovemaking would probably make for horrible porn, let's be honest. You know,
0: <laughs> I mean, one, at least from my perspective, you know, right? I, there, uh, there's I think there actually is a genre of the porn that's like that, that's for people who actually want that. Um, And I don't even know that if porn caters to the majority of people uh, in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, there's a different consciousness in that industry and in the stuff that's produced there than I think that most people have in their personal lives. It's certainly affecting people's consciousness. And that's a whole other topic. But when it comes to, I, I actually, On this subject, I know some people have started to question the issue of circumcision because they see intact men in porn. And they see that that part of the body does something different. And they go, wait a minute, like, I can't do that. Like, why, how is that happening? What's going on here? Um, And so seeing that part of the body changes them in some way. Now, most porn is produced in the United States. And so it's not featuring a lot of people who are intact, but it does exist, right? Right. And so when people see that, I think it causes them to question it a little bit. Um, as far as the change in sexuality, the foreskin is a gliding mechanism for the penis. So the same way that I could you know, slide my hand in and out of my sleeve, the the head of the penis slides in and out of that foreskin. And so instead of having to rub through friction on the woman, the man is gliding in and out of himself. And because of that, he can stay much closer into the woman. He doesn't need to do these long strokes that take his body away from hers. And if you look at natural sexuality, that man is able to grind against her body because he remains much closer and he's he's stimulating not just her internally, but her externally with his body against hers. Whereas those long strokes take him away from a woman's body, And, and it is true that keratinization, that rough material on the head of the penis in circumcised men, builds up over time. So the same way that if you use your hands a lot, you get calluses on them, if the head of your penis is rubbing against whatever you're wearing over and over, then you're going to build up keratinization and a covering there. And that's also part of the reason that as men get older, they they say that they tend to lose sensitivity. That isn't true as much in intact countries because that part of the body isn't being rubbed and abraded. So if you're older and you're losing sensitivity, you could probably regain a lot of it by just covering the head of your penis for two, three weeks, like just wear a condom for that duration of time. And I've heard a lot of older men say that it feels like it was when it was 18 for them, that it's just like that much more intense. So if you're willing, if you're willing to do that and sort of take that experiment, it'll be, it's a significant difference, at least according to the men I've talked to who've done it.
1: We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Now is the time, folks. Where we're going to be talking about some magnetism. I want you to go over to 2bmagnetic.com forward slash Luke and visit the courses put on by my friend Lacey Phillips, who is not one, but a former two-time guest on this very podcast. You can catch her on episodes 180 and 96, two of my most popular shows. All about manifesting what you want in your life, and the one that we did most recently, uh, number one eighty, was like a two-hour deep dive into her whole formula for manifestation, which has a lot to do with unblocking low self-worth. You know, that's really where this stuff comes from. We all know about the New Agey manifestation courses, right? And doing vision boards and all those things. And I love all that. It's great. It's all good. But I have not found those things to be terribly effective. Like, I'm not rich yet. You know what I'm saying? And I've done a lot of work around manifesting. And it really has to do with using psychology and neuroscience. We've got to get in and reprogram the mind. And that's exactly what Lacey Phillips does in her courses at tobemagnetic.com forward slash Luke. She takes you through these guided meditations and quite literally hypnotizes you to jar loose, those whack ideas and experiences that you've had in your life that are blocking you from abundance, whether that be calling in a new partner, money, career, whatever it is. So go to to bemagnetic.com forward slash Luke, enter the code Luke to save an additional 10% off these already affordable courses that are only going to take you about 20 minutes a day and they are going to seriously change your life. That's to bemagnetic.com forward slash Luke. And now back to the interview. what about the health implications cuz this you know aside from the religious argument which you know is valid i guess if one is fully faithful and doesn't look into some of the actual verbiage as you did it's like well they're talking about a different type and you know there's a lot of nuances with the omitting the slavery part but leaving in that part and all that which is fascinating uh what about the people that go oh well you're going to get gonorrhea and herpes and aids and You know the sexually transmitted diseases and all of this. It seems that um, we're in a much more sterile world now, where infectious diseases are able to uh, be kept at bay just by the fact that we have clean water and hospitals. And you know, I've never had any kind of random infection, you know, like that. Um, Is there any validity to you know the the medical side of it in terms of? Just cleanliness and disease because the people that were interviewed in the film that were the biggest proponents and that were trying to prove that it was medically necessary were so vapid and um, obviously either incompetent or just really lacking in integrity and being attached to some idea for some other incentives, Um, especially the stuff around HIV and AIDS. You're just like, are you serious? The arguments were so flimsy.
0: Yeah, so the HIV studies were done in Africa in places that often don't have clean running water. And so they've tried to extrapolate that data and say, well, that must mean we need to do circumcision to prevent HIV in the United States, where HIV is transmitted completely differently. And there's a lot of issues with that data. And it would take it would take a very long time to go through each study and break down the data. But on all of those um, there's data to suggest that female circumcision, circumcised women, do not have the same high rates of STDs that American women do. You know, like, you wouldn't make the argument, that well, maybe we should start practicing that. You would say, well, women have the right to make their own choices about their bodies, even even if that data was true. We shouldn't do it. And we don't frame any other part of the body that way. We don't say, well, what are the health benefits and risks of chopping off your ear or removing your eyelids? You know you'd have a lot less nose infections if you chopped off your nose right uh we don't frame any other part of the body that way but i think that there's a a consciousness in that way of thinking that sexuality and sex and that part of the body is somehow dirty and in need of fixing and that goes all the way back to the victorian origins of circumcision that this part of the body is somehow uniquely bad and and gross and disgusting and it comes from a very sex negative consciousness and I would predict actually even, uh, you know, since you've said this interview will probably go out later, I would predict that if if the organizations that are promoting circumcision decide they really don't like me and they want to do a hit piece on me, that that's the angle they'll come at. They'll say that somehow this is like some gross, weird sex thing, or there's something wrong with me, or that I'm somehow, a you know, a bad, perverted person. That that's the angle they would choose. Because it's in their consciousness that this is like, it's not something they like. Um, And on the the claims themselves, even large pro-circumcision organizations are backing away from the medical claims. So if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics statements in the 80s, they will say circumcision is the healthiest thing ever to happen and you're an idiot if you don't do it to your kid. Now, when I talk to members of the American Academy of Pediatrics, they have backed away from those claims and they say the health benefits are not that compelling. There really isn't a lot it does that you couldn't get from from you know just soap and water. And even then, they're slightly you know, they get certain parts of that wrong because the they'll say that you need to clean under the foreskin, but you don't actually. You only clean what is seen when the child is young because the foreskin is fused to the head of the penis. It'd be like cleaning under your fingernail. You only clean the outside of it, right? Um, and that's a whole other topic in the film, but. Uh, the health, they'll now say the health benefits aren't that compelling. You know. And if you go through all of those claims and really get into the data, it's really specious. And the difficulty is how many people are reading the data in peer-reviewed studies. You know, They read a headline or they hear someone say something and that kind of goes in their mind and that's it. And then it would take a very long time to get into the data. And at the same time, the entire frame of that is in some way incorrect because we don't frame female circumcision the same way. So the one study we do get into in the film that we really go deep on is the HIV studies because that seems to be the biggest thing that comes up. And when you get into those studies, they'll say, well, it reduces HIV by 60%. And people go, okay, that sounds great. Good. I don't like HIV. I want to stop that. And and, and it's interesting too, because these health claims, it's whatever the biggest disease is at the time. So right now it's HIV. So that's the direction that they're going. Um, And when you get into those claims, it's actually... that's. 60% is the relative risk reduction. So relative risk, you know, if you're outside and you go inside, your relative risk of being hit by a meteorite has probably gone down by like a thousand percent. But what's your absolute risk? Well, the absolute risk of that is probably very insignificant. And the absolute risk of uh, HIV reduction, according to these studies, is like 1.3%, which is much less compelling. And on top of that, when you get into the data, you know, more people left the study than stayed in. And the group that was circumcised got regular health counseling in which they were told to use condoms. And they found that the group that was circumcised used condoms at a higher rate. So those aren't really even HIV studies. Those are condom studies. If you have one group that's circumcised and uses more condoms, then they have less HIV. And it's like, well, of course, if they use condoms at a higher rate, then their rate of STDs is lower, right? Um, and then they'll get all sorts of data that has nothing to do with. It. Like they were, they've said, "Well, the men in these studies say the sexual their sexuality is fine. There's no sensitivity reduction, but those men are being paid, you're given free health care, which is the equivalent of giving someone in the United States $10,000 a year. And they're that I mean, you could not do a study like that in America because they call it unethical. You can't pay your your interview subjects that much. So they paid. Third world people in Africa who don't have any money. They gave them the equivalent of 10000 dollars And then oh, oh my gosh, they they self-reported data that the researchers wanted. Who could have guessed? Um, and then on top of that, all the sexuality data is self-reported. So, I mean, self-reported data, there's no sensitivity test, there's no actually seeing the nerve endings or any measurement. It's just, do you feel fine, guy that we're paying a bunch of money? Yeah, sure. I feel good. Okay, great. That's our data. Like we've we've done a study now. You know like when you get into it it's like that crazy but but the <laughs> oh organizations God. that are are pushing it and running these have a lot of money and influence. I mean you're looking at um John Hopkins University, you're looking at the the Gates Foundation, uh the Clinton Foundation, Petfar. Oh, I I really trust those foundations. <laughs> right, right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the most evil globalist on the in the all of mankind's history practically. Um, yeah. I try not to get political on the show, but those, those are some creepy people
0: uh, to me. Well, I don't think you have to get partisan to see that groups that are putting millions of dollars into something might have a financial interest in getting a certain result in their research. Like, why though? See, I have to go conspiratorial
1: here. Why would the Bill Gates Foundation, which are up to all sorts of nasty shit, eugenics programs, all kinds of weird stuff, um, what would be... I don't know if you even know or if you're at liberty to say, but what would be the incentive for these foundations to sink money into proving to the public that we need to mutilate males? Like, is it a eugenics thing so people don't procreate? Are they trying to create social strife or what the... Or do they actually believe that that it is a health risk that needs to be addressed and they're kind of cheating and using skewed research to forward their agenda? Like, What's the incentive there?
0: So if you ask them, they will say, we want to stop HIV and we think this is the best way to do it. That would be their stated reason. Um, is there something different in their hearts, a different motivation? I don't know. I, I am not going to speculate as to what's in their hearts. Uh, I do know that one of the major circumcision campaigns in Africa was called Operation Operation Abraham and was was being run... Um, by, I believe, someone who is Israeli. And, I, and one of the activists I talked to you pointed out, like, why is it called Operation Abraham? Like, why not Operation Stop HIV? You know, that's a very interesting focus to name it. Um, and so I've heard a lot of different theories, including some of the ones that you mentioned, but I, I, I don't have enough evidence to conclusively say what reason they might be doing it. I just know that the data... Um, doesn't support the claims that they're making. And, And whether or not they're making those claims sincerely or there's a different thing, I don't know. I do know there's a lot of American medical companies that will test things in Africa because the ethics involved are a lot looser. You don't have to get the same kind of consent and regulation that you would have in America. And doing something like this certainly brings a lot of people in that there are other possibilities of things that you could do with them if you're if you're involved in the medical industry in some way, but again, like you know, if you ask them, they're doing it because they want to stop HIV, and um, there's not enough. Uh, Re- to find out if there was a different motivation would require a lot of research and in investigative journalism.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm speculating, and didn't expect you to speculate. But it's just, you know, I don't know. There, there's certain organizations that you watch over time, and they're just always up to something shady. And someone's like, yeah, but why? What's the why? What's their why when they're putting so much money and effort into these huge, you know, incentives? It's just strange. Um, okay, so in terms of where do I want to go with this? I want to start to begin to tie a bow on this. I could talk about this forever. It's just so fascinating. As you said, I mean, we could go off on the religious thing and make a five-part series just on that. But I think something that would be really good to cover is kind of the human rights violation of it as it pertains to the actual procedure. As I alluded to earlier, when I actually... You know, forced my eyelids open almost like clockwork orange style and just like, Luke, you have to watch this like face reality right now. you can handle it. And I watched the the operation which if I if I'm not mistaken was done by one of the best doctors at circumcision who's one of the most ethical and humane guys at doing it. and even that version of it was just horrific. it was it was absolutely a, a horror show watching this baby get just the injection just the blood curdling screams and the blood and it just looked like something quite frankly satanic i mean it's just i would never ever want that done to a human being male female any race creed color anywhere on the planet there's restraints there's screaming there's these weird tools that they use to peel the skin back i mean like how is the 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 medical surgical part of it normally done if you could sort of describe that for people how much pain are they feeling or not? Mm. The the numbing
0: agents yeah. used, etc. So even describing it um, might make some people squirm. And and there was a movie, a Hollywood film that came out a while ago called What to Expect when when you're expecting, which is just you know about parents expecting a child named after the famous book. And one of the things I heard about that film is that in order to avoid an R rating, they could not even describe what circumcision is. That just describing what circumcision is would have given them an R rating. So I'm about to give your podcast a, an R rating, maybe even an <laughs> NC-17 <laughs> with this description. That's okay. Um, but the when a child is born, the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands. So kind of like how your fingernail is fused to your finger. Um, and people will tell you, "Oh, you need to clean under there." You know, peeling it back or doing that is actually harmful to the child. And you should. Many doctors are misinformed. You should, if you have an intact child, you should not let them do that. But when they do the circumcision, they first have to break that away. So they slide a probe under there and break it away, which again is like if you were to slide a probe under your fingernail and break it off. It is extremely painful, and it's the first thing the child feels. And actually, I'll say before that, even if they're very often, the procedure is done without anesthesia. Um, what um, up until the? Are m- you yeah. serious? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, we we talk about that in the film that basically up until the 80s, doctors believed that infants did not feel pain. And even if they did, they wouldn't remember it. So they would do all sorts of procedures without anesthesia. And even now, I've heard the anesthesia rate still only about 50%. And even that 50%, anesthesia takes five minutes to be effective. So if you put the anesthesia on and then you immediately start the procedure, which many doctors do because they're busy and they don't want to wait, then it's like no anesthesia. So they'll say on the chart, we used anesthesia they didn't wait for it to be effective. So most of these that are done are still extremely painful. And on top of that, you can't give a child full anesthesia. That would, that would for a newborn infant, that might kill them. So then you use topical anesthesia. And the child can't really, you know, as an adult, you can, if you get a procedure with anesthesia, you can tell the person, hey, I need more. Um, I can still feel it. The child can't really communicate that. And so very often, even if it's used, they still feel it. So everything I'm telling you this is felt fully in most cases. Um, and, and the other thing that is strange about it is, you know, first they rub this on, right, or they put an iodine solution on. And when you rub the child like that, they get an erection. So on some level, this is like a shared sexual experience between an adult and a child. That they're they're stimulating the child this, this way, and I've heard that some nurses do this because it's easier to do the procedure while the child has an erection, which think about like the psychosexual implications of that, right? So they do that, and then they shove this probe in, which is extremely painful, like putting something between your fingernail and your finger. And then they place a clamp over the tissue. Um, usually what's known as a Mogan clamp or a Gomco clamp or a Plastiball. Those are the three most common methods, but usually it's the Gomco clamp which places a thousand tons of pressure on that skin. So it's clamping it to cut off circulation so that the doctor can cut it away. This is an involved 15-minute procedure. When people tell you it's a little snip, it's an involved procedure. And the, the, you know, well, even though an adult might not have to sit through this or might skip this or might be uncomfortable watching it, the child can't, right? And, and if you look at children, time they experience time a lot differently you know they're they're new to the world they don't know how long this is going to last like this is their existence for the time it's happening they're they're not able to process the world the way that adults can um and then once that clamp has been on for about 5 minutes then the doctor slices the skin away and usually there is a bloody wound over the top of the the penis i mean that's all scar tissue above the scar line after this point because when it's, you know, like, just like if you were to rip your fingernail, well, there'd be scar tissue there. There's scar tissue um, now on the head of the penis. And they'll tell parents you have to, like, clean the wound, essentially, for the next couple of days. I mean, that's not something I think even most parents think about or know. I've heard of um, babysitters or people who have friends with them who, like, open the diaper and there's, like, blood. And they're like, what the hell is this? It's like, oh, it's leftover from the circumcision.
1: A friend of mine just had his kid... um... Or no, I think he had his boy circumcised six days after he was born, Mm -hmm. came home, took off the diaper, and it was just a freaking horror show, just covered in blood, you know? And I didn't, I was, he had already done it, so I didn't want him to feel guilty. I was gonna be like, dude, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, it's done. So it's whatever. I didn't, I just left it alone, but he just happened to be talking about it. I was like, oh God, I wish I would have gotten to him (laughs) three years ago, you know?
0: Anyway, carry on. But I mean, that's, that's the procedure. And then the, because it's a wound healing, you know, when the child goes home, even after the, if there's any anesthesia used after it wears off, he's still in pain. So for the first several weeks of life, that formative time when you're, you're learning about the world, he's receiving pain in that part of the body for no reason. I mean, did, you know, people will debate, like, is there a psychological impact later? And it's like, how could there not be with that experience? This is
1: yeah. this is the thing when I've talked to more narrow-minded people about this issue. Again, not so much women. They they immediately kind of go, Oh, duh, yeah. Well, I would never do that now that I know. But men, one of the things they'll say is like, Oh, you don't remember that. Don't be a pussy, bro. It's like this macho thing, like, oh, you know, you can handle it. Be a man. You don't even remember that. You're so young. You can't feel pain, kind of thing. And I'm like, The reason that you're such a meathead and an idiot is because you were circumcised, probably. You've been desensitized not only to your own body, but just to the plight of
0: other humans going through the life experience, you know? Well, men get a lot of cultural conditioning around that. Like, in order, like we talked about earlier, how men are socially rewarded for risking their physical safety for others. Doing that sometimes requires like the way that society has conditioned men to do that is to suppress their emotions. So if you go into battle as a soldier or something like that, then you're afraid. Like there's a part of you like, maybe I don't want to kill someone. Maybe uh, I'm scared, but you have to suppress those emotions. So in order to get men to do the tasks that society wants them to do, we, we condition men not to pay attention to their feelings. And, If you look at what is actually useful uh, if you're a warrior, um, I actually think that there is uh, empathy is incredibly useful even to men who are warriors to be able to understand your opponent's perspective and how they think and what they're doing and anticipate what they're doing is incredibly useful. Uh, I have a friend who's really into martial arts and he talks about how men are taught essentially to like stiffen their bodies. Like you tense and you like grit your teeth and bear it. And if you look at martial arts, you want to be really flowy with your body. You want to be absolutely loose so that you can respond immediately to a situation. So the ways in which we condition men are useful if you're trying to get men to do something that goes against their conscience and their true self. And they're not very useful if you want whole men. If you want men who are actually in touch with their inner compass, and that that conditioning goes throughout life. I mean, we tell men, um, you know, to to be a man and then endure other things. We tell them that uh, on the battlefield. We tell them that throughout their life. We tell them that at work. And then we're like, oh, why? Why are men not good at expressing their feelings? Like, what what could this be? You know, but it's it's that social conditioning. And This is in some way the first. Well, of- I
1: absolutely believe that this is uh, a PTSD situation and that this is at the root of a lot of mental health issues for men. I just don't see how you could experience that. See, it's like if something's out of, you know, I've done so much personal development work too, where you're really looking back as far as you can go into your memory and you have your conscious memories, which for most people start, you know, three, four, five years old, something like that. I mean, I have a couple. Just very vague memories, maybe from three years old or something like that. But just because we don't remember it with the conscious mind doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in the subconscious mind. Everything you've ever experienced is housed in the subconscious mind. This is proven. So this isn't something that's, oh, I was six days old or I was three years old or whatever it was, depending on cultural norms of this practice. You remember that shit and it has an impact on you. And, you know, I, I'm not going to tell anyone else how to live their life, but there's so much talk now about this concept of toxic masculinity, which I don't even know what that is. I personally think it's toxic femininity in men because when men are assholes and rageful and freaking out and being violent, they're actually being feminine. They're totally captured by their emotions and being hurtful and harmful. It's a little bit of different perspective. But you know, I get it. There's sexual predators and pedophiles and rapists and males are up to all sorts of nefarious shit as are some females, obviously. Uh, I think that if people care about society in general, whatever society uh, you're in, and in particular, you want to see men be more conscious and have more empathy and compassion and be more loving and more kind and protect women and children rather than subjugating them and exploiting them and abusing them, that it might be a good fucking idea to stop abusing them when they're born. I mean, seriously. And that's why I was so excited to interview because this to me this is a huge social issue because I understand how the mind works and I'm someone that's experienced a lot of trauma, man. I was sexually abused by a couple men when I was a kid, and it shaped my whole life, dude. I mean, I've been working to I've been working to heal from that stuff forever. And I and I don't know how much difference there is between when someone goes through that experience and remembers it consciously between a male going through that experience that we're describing and have been describing and not remembering it consciously it's like double jeopardy if you're someone that's been abused you know consciously and you remember it and you can visualize it and it had an impact on you because you were able to you know um process it or a lack of of processing it i guess would be more aptly um said but it's you know we have enough abuse that goes on even outside of that. So I just I just think this is such an important issue for people to think about and to really, as I said when I was starting the Facebook and Instagram live, to just be open minded about it and not you know necessarily to be resigned to um, agreeing with your perspective or the perspective of your film or my perspective, which is obviously very biased. I have a very firm stance on this. I'm not ever going to back down from. Um, so if someone's listening to this or watching this and you don't agree, I would just recommend that they watch your film and they do some research and really just keep a very open mind and a broad perspective and and look at the further implications of this down the road for each individual man and collectively how it affects our society from the perspective of men's behavior. And I I really think that this is an issue that people um, are ignoring largely and that once this starts to become more widely known, we will see systemically some vast improvements in the ways in which uh, male <laughs> male-bodied people behave. And so, if you want to, you know, not have a toxic patriarchy and all of this kind of stuff, cool, I get it. Like, let's stop hurting baby boys.
0: I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you being willing to get that personal about it. Um. I think a lot of men are afraid of exploring this issue because they feel like if those feelings come up, that they'll never end, like I'm always going to feel that way. And the great thing about healing work is that when it gets better, it gets better. I, I, You probably felt the things that you felt around your sexual abuse most of your life. You just weren't conscious of them. And as you got older and you worked on it, my guess is that you're better than it was
1: before. Oh, yeah. I mean, the more that I face it... D- dude, I mean, when I was 18 years old, I wouldn't have been on a goddamn podcast, you know, right. relaying that yeah. that very personal information to, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah. Yeah. of people now. Uh, at, at some point, this will be... Um, yeah, I've done a lot of work around it. And it's funny because I usually don't get emotional about it. I think I just feel so strongly mm-hmm. about it as it pertains to this issue. You know, how many how many men who become sexual predators are doing so partly as a result of having been harmed in this way and losing that sense of empathy and sensitivity toward other living creatures you yeah. know so it's like it there's a relation there i think to me that i'm starting to connect and uh and that makes it more impactful but yeah i've had to face this stuff head on and you know i went into a life of drug addiction for a long time which i thankfully have been free of for many many years but that was that was the way that i dealt with it i just i could not process those experiences without anesthesia. And my anesthesia was marijuana, cocaine, heroin, crack, crystal meth, you know, you name it. That, I mean, that's the shit that I had to do to just be able to be in the world and and largely to suppress those feelings of, of shame and um, of guilt and not fitting in and feeling different and anger and resentment against having been harmed. And luckily I never became a predator myself or was violent or things like that, but I was, I inflicted a lot of self pain and self injury um, mm-hmm. it was my, mm-hmm. my pain was more directed inward and I sort of just collapsed in on myself as an adolescent and a, and a, young man. And so my healing has been all about facing it and being able to just talk about it and go, Hey, it's just, it's a thing that happened. And, you know, in a, in a weird sense, and this might be hard for someone to grasp. And this probably could be said to a degree about having gone through the circumcision torture, uh, is that it's made me who I am today and I feel really good about who I am. You know, I am so passionate about these things because I know what it's like and I know what it's like to suffer and so my life's mission is to alleviate suffering for my fellow humans um because I know that there are there's answers to be had and there's alternatives available. And so uh I don't I don't regret any of it but I would also, you know, if I have a baby boy, the shit's not happening to them. So you know the chain stops with me and i'll do everything yeah. i can to protect them from harm in in any way because i know what it's like to live uh, life as someone who's experienced that shit
0: i feel that my i that is an excellent mission and mine is to change human consciousness to raise it and i you know people will say oh don't you have something better to focus on and it's like no this is the most important issue Um, If you change this, if you shift it, then you change men's relationship to themselves, their relationship to their sexuality. You change the relationship between men and women. You have people who are working on every other issue with less trauma and more pleasure and more connection to one another. I think that our experiences early in life shape the rest of our life. And if you can shift that, everything else changes. And people may not ever know the change that's happened. They may not ever realize how much those early experiences affected them, but if you shift them, other things in the world will start to shift. And you know, I, I really appreciate what you said earlier about toxic masculinity and femininity and and consent, because one of the things I've heard about this issue is that this teaches men in their first shared sexual experience and in their in their relationship to their mother. The, the the relationship that all other relationships with women will be patterned on. That if you're bigger and stronger than someone else, you get to do what you want to their body. Like that is a huge, profound lesson to teach a man on his first day of life, in his first sexual experience, in his first relationship to a woman. And then we wonder why men are the way that they are in the West. Um. You know, I think if you're someone who is concerned about consent, if you are concerned about gender equality, this should be your number one issue. Because if you, you know, people say, oh, you have to teach men not to rape. Well, where did they learn it? Who taught them? Men are surrounded by women for the first 20 years of their life. They have a mother, and very often it's just a mother, it's single mothers now. They have teachers that are predominantly female, the nurses are predominantly female. This is something that women teach men, and if women want, they could teach men something different at any point that's really interesting. I've
1: actually pondered that too, and i'm you know like I'm always careful not to get too deep into social and political issues and things like that because i I honestly don't feel adequately equipped to deal with many of them and I don't know that I, my perspective I mean, we're all, we're already
0: pretty deep we're so. pretty deep in the woods here, but
1: um it's interesting because. I was raised predominantly by women and, and they did the best they could. And I, you know, I love my mom. She she did, she did as good a job as she could possibly do. And as, as my dad did, but as a man, the, you know, and I learned so many great things from her. I mean, just caring about people and not being racist and not being sexist. And, you know, she was very liberal and was from Berkeley. And so I hold those ideals to this day. And I think I'm a pretty fair-minded person and I care about people and I have a sense of love and compassion for people that's abundant. And I credit my mom for that. But when it comes to being a good man and being a strong man in the healthy sense of of, of masculine energy, of, of healthy masculine energy, of feeling a sense of taking care of and protecting and holding space for women, animals, children, etc., that has been learned by me from modeling men like really conscious men spiritual teachers and personal development teachers and you know it's funny i just went and did this thing with tony robbins um the date with destiny and i'm looking up on the stage i'm going that's a fucking man you know a man that's full of love but is yeah. also strong and doesn't give a shit what people think and is just living his life and is not politically correct and you know, like him or not, he's having a very positive impact on the world. And I happen to agree with, you know, his perspective on things and benefited a lot from what I was able to learn. But it's like, man, the world could really, or our culture could really use more men that are in touch with actual healthy masculinity, which is strong and noble and honorable. And uh, I think it's just really important to identify that we, we need more strong men to teach the men. And then if men are screwed up, women might want to take a look at how they're behaving. Because as you said, all, you know the majority of our teachers and the humans responsible for our upbringing are typically women. And so if a man turns out screwed up, it's, it's, it's not because the men in their life taught them to do that. It's usually because there was no fucking men around.
0: Yeah, we talk about toxic masculinity and I think toxic masculinity is really just a lack of masculinity. There is this idea that the solution to what we call toxic masculinity is to somehow do away with masculinity. And uh, toxic masculinity is really just the absence of something, not the presence of something. And I think the solution to that is true masculinity. You know, there's this idea that we need to like let go of the aspects of masculinity that want strength or power or boundaries, um, the parts of masculinity that are traditionally good. And I don't think that those are bad. I think what we need to do is add to them the capacity for empathy and awareness. And, you know, Elliot Hulse, who's someone else I've spoken to about this issue, he likes to talk about how masculinity is the combination of tenderness and aggression. And you'll notice that many people who say, "Well, we need to change masculinity," they have a split between these two. They say, "Well, we just need to focus on the tenderness and ignore all that aggression stuff." And traditional masculinity is like, "We need this aggression and like forget all that tenderness stuff." And I think the reality is you want both. And if you can have both, if you can have that strength with that awareness, that's incredibly powerful. And I think that both of those integrated, united, is the solution to what we call toxic masculinity.
1: That's very well said. Thank you for. For summarizing the thought that I was trying to articulate very well said um I, there's a guy that I've interviewed a couple of times named John Wineland, and he's a, a kind of a relationship teacher and teaches a lot about the polarities of masculine and feminine and he talks about this quality of um of the masculine which is fierce love you know and it, it it's a balance there's love but there's also you running in a burning building and rescuing everyone that's not oh wishy-washy i don't know it doesn't really feel good to like run in that building right now i don't know like could be dangerous <laughs> no you fucking <laughs> uh, the ma- i mean and i've experienced this in my own life i had i remember the weirdest thing happened i was like oh 20 years old 22 20 21 22 or something i was in hollywood and you know in the drug years i was no pillar of uh you know, mental health or any kind of masculinity of any kind, toxic or otherwise. But anyway, one day I'm walking out of my apartment with my girlfriend and I look across the street and it just happened in a flash. But I saw these three uh, older teenagers carjacking this Domino's Pizza delivery guy, this older Latino guy, and they were dragging him out of the car and like carjacking him. And I didn't think. It didn't occur to me. I'm not like a tough dude. I mean, I'm much tougher now. But when I was then, I was like a musician, super skinny, like not, not the guy that's going to rescue anyone. But without even thinking, I ran across the street and fucking ripped these three kids that were all bigger than me and way tougher than me out of this car. I'm just screaming, raving lunatic. And I chased three dudes away. And the Domino's guy looks up and he's like, Oh my God, who are you, Superman? You know, he's just looking at me like his jaws on the ground. And I'm looking at myself, going, You idiot, what did you just do? You could have just gotten killed, you know? It's like I went into some sort of trance. And I've had a few experiences like that. And that's that's the positive side of masculinity. You know, that's the hero. That's 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 honor. That's where you you care about others enough to sacrifice yourself. And, you know, you mentioned military and servicemen and um, police you know good police officers and 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 all of this, and um you know e m t s and of course, there are female people in those industries as well but i 'm speaking specifically about the men um that 's a really great quality to have, and without that, the fabric of our society crumbles, but on the other side, conversely, as you said, without the balance of having some consciousness and empathy and love in equal measure, then you have problems, and then you do have a patriarchy and then you do have a a sex, or you know, whether a gender or a race that is suppressed and exploited. So I think balance is what we're going for. And again, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to this: if we want that balance, then we've got to teach men that sensitivity from the very beginning. And that has a lot to do with how they experience their first sexual experiences and physicality as it pertains to this issue. So I just love talking about stuff like this, and I love presenting it to. The people watching and listening, because when I approach these things in this way, I get so much positive feedback from men and women. Because I think when you, I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to say when I was going to say, when you talk about the truth about something, you know, the truth is, of course, up to the person interpreting the truth. But for me, these are just fundamental principles of nature. Don't hack off sex organs of other people if you want them to be good people. Pretty basic stuff. But when people hear the truth, even if they have a different perspective culturally, socially, politically, If they have an open enough mind, I think we can all find a a meeting point in the middle that is not um, polarized, you know, that has, hey, there's some good and bad in both sides of this thing. But I think we can all agree that harming other people in any capacity is not good for us in any way. So that's my soapbox. I'm stepping off it now. <laughs> you're you're the guest. You're supposed to be the one with the soapbox, but I'm just so passionate about your project and your and your mission. It's just it excites me that, you know, people are having the courage and, and also I have to give Netflix credit, dude. You're somewhat conformist um sort of platform, you know, in in many ways and you're way outside of the box here and uh, I'm just stoked that they we're able to open up space for you and allow this message to get through too. Because obviously most people are going to get their video media, I think, from Netflix now.
0: Yeah, I, I'm really glad that that came through. And it's something that I deliberately did not talk about right up until it happened. Um, because uh, you, on you of the Netflix version, some of the scenes of the circumcision are blurred. So we had to blur that for them since it's a, technically a television platform. And so I, I we we're kind of going back and forth about how much of that we'd have to do. And there's a little part of me that's worried, like, well, it's supposed to start on the sixteenth, but are they gonna ask for more at the last minute? Um, and so and and on top of that, I knew uh, there's a um, someone I know, Cassie J, who did a film called The Red Pill about men's rights.
1: Oh, I love that. I was gonna mention yeah. that. I
0: love that film. So she had the same distributor that I do, and She her film was going to be on Netflix and got pulled at the last second. I think in part because of the controversy she received. And so I kind of just kept my head low about, you know, didn't talk about it because I I knew that if I did, someone might try to put pressure on them to have it removed. And, uh, you know, I think for them, it's like, it's just a numbers thing. Like they spend a bunch of money on content and an independent documentary kind of fits their their profile. If you look at some of the documentaries on there, there's, you know, a really wide range of topics, but it's like it's controversial. It gets attention. There's not really anything else like this that covers the issue. Uh, It kind of makes sense for them as a as a choice. And uh, I'm I'm really glad because it's getting a huge response there. And it's getting I've realized it's getting a huge response from people who are um, you know, not when you might call them normies people who aren't like really going deep on these issues. They they have a very regular life, and their activity when they come home and they want to relax is they open Netflix and see what's on. And so it's reaching them, which I think is really good.
1: Good,
0: that's huge, dude. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. I'm
1: so glad that you're able to infiltrate the mainstream <laughs> with with stuff like this because it is provocative. I mean, just the title, just having the word circumcision, anyone. That reads English is going to be like, what the hell is this? And click <laughs> right. on it. I mean, it's just there's there's kind of I don't, it just really is sticky in that way, in the best sense, um, no pun intended. So I'm I'm just so happy for you, and I you know appreciate your courage, dude. And like your friend that made the the movie The Red Pill, I know she got a rash of shit, and she's just simply saying. And by the way, I highly recommend the movie The Red Pill. Um, is very misrepresented and misunderstood. If you actually watch it, she's just going like, oh, hey, there's actually social issues that affect men too. They're not right, all right, assholes. Yeah, yeah. You know, shocker. <laughs> like, we're not allowed to say that. You know, it's, it's weird. It's almost like the pendulum in some ways has swung the other way where, you know, men, because they've behaved poorly throughout history in many ways are now just completely demonized in and, and a blanket sort of way. And again, it's not that's not productive either. You know, it's like, sure, let's identify things that need to be fixed and worked on, but let's also like help everyone. And and so, you know, I, I really respect people that put themselves out there. And what's interesting about her story, you know, is that she was an ardent feminist, just to give you guys a little background, sets out to do a story about this men's rights movement, and she's gonna just viscerate all these leaders and people that she thinks are these misogynistic assholes and then Halfway through kind of switches teams, you know, I was like, oh, they actually have a good point. Which is the sign of an intelligent, fully integrated person to be able to be malleable and form an opinion once you get all of the facts and look at things from both perspectives and be able to find the value in in both sides of it. You know, if we had more of that in the political climate, we'd be a lot healthier country and cultural. We're so polarized now. It's it's fascinating to watch. As someone who's not, I don't have a side, you know, I'm like looking at both sides going, eh. You guys got a good point over here, but they have a really good point over here. And, you know, there's, there's very few people that are able to kind of be in the
0: middle and um, be productive about it. Yeah, I think because people don't have a clear sense of tribe or community in real life, they try to find tribe or community in ideological groups. So it used to be the people who lived in your town or members of your family, that was your tribe. And... Now we don't really have that. I mean, you might not know who your neighbors are. You might uh, not have a community that stays in one location a very long time. So people create these sort of weird ideological tribes. Well, like um, Mac users, that's my tribe. And and, or like uh, people who agree with me on climate change, that's my tribe. And and I have a friend who likes to define tribe as your your tribe is, is anyone who you could call and they would help you move furniture if you needed to move like, and, and you can't, you can't call people from your ideological tribe. Hey, I'm moving today. Can you help me lift some, some furniture, you know? Um, but yeah, people define it really weirdly now. And I think it comes from that we're actually hungry to know who our tribe is. And there is this primal instinct of wanting to know who those people are. I mean, it's a survival need. Uh, and it's interesting to see the difference between how Cassie J's film has been received and mine because she, her background was um, what you might call social justice filmmaking. She did a lot of films that were very well received in that world. And then when she did this film, a lot of those people turned on her. And I, th- I think it was very unfair. And at the same time, you know, when I was working on my film, um, one of the things we talk about was the San Francisco Ballot Initiative, which was an attempt to ban circumcision in the city of San Francisco. And in response to that, there were a lot of large organizations, a lot of large Jewish organizations, including the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, who basically tried to brand anyone uh, who is against circumcision as uh, somehow an anti-Semite. Basically, if you if you don't want someone to Touch your penis and cut part of it off, you must it must be because you're a Nazi. That see, that is the fucking problem with our culture right there, dude. Well they they feel threatened and they're you know they're using this as a yes. political tactic to silence people.
1: But after that But this is this is very common. I don't agree with you. You're so you're a Nazi.
0: Like that's yeah, that's yeah. where we're at. It's insane. It's it's BS and at the same time, you know, when I was working on the film, I saw that and I thought, you know, if I'm gonna make this film, I've got to be ready for that treatment. And I've got to be ready for that level of attack or people coming at me. And so I kind of went into it, you know, like I'm ready for it and it hasn't happened. And it's been sort of surprising to me, like the amount uh, that we've received, you know, that, um, someone like Cassie J who'd been in, in that world a long time gets this horrible treatment. And like, we won an award at a social justice film festival and we were invited there, and um, I've had a lot of support from that community in that world. And I, I think it's really great. And I always have framed this issue as being for everyone, you know, it's everyone, regardless of your political beliefs, regardless of your religion, regardless of your background or your race, um, everyone has children. And so everyone needs access to this information. And one of the things I've really enjoyed is being able to talk to people who are very much on the left and people who are very much on the right and people who have um, completely different ways of seeing the world and get the, getting them to see this film and talk about the issue. And I think this issue in some way is one of the few places that people could come together because it cross, it cuts across so many different ideologies and, and uh, social groups. Uh, everyone wants children to be safe. And, and cares about that so i, I actually see this as one of the few issues that maybe could bring people together as divisive as it is for other people yeah that that makes a lot of sense
1: actually you know um it is not a partisan issue it's a human issue and there are very few issues that can be kind of safely nestled within that um that uh neutral position so that's cool man well i'm stoked for you what's um what's next for you is this is this a topic that you're going to keep working on solely or do you have ideas for other similar types of films or what direction are you going as a, as a director and a content creator?
0: I am blessed and cursed with more ideas than time. And I think that the one I do next is going to depend a bit on funding and what I can do. One of the things I'm trying to put together is a course for other, uh, filmmakers and other people who are interested in crowdfunding things about how to take your idea from a pitch to a crowdfunding campaign to you know, being out in the world and on Netflix and places like that. Because uh, I, I feel like one of the things I've learned in the process of doing this is a lot about the promotion and marketing side of the film. Um, and it's something I feel like I could teach now and that that people might um, be, find them really useful. So I'm going to try to put together a course on that, which hopefully... I don't know if it'll be out by the time this airs, but we'll see. Um, and it's also... I, I do want to keep talking about this issue. I have other film projects, documentary projects, there's even a book I want to write. Um, but I think that this issue is something that is important and worth continued focus. So uh, even now I'm putting out a lot of social media content. And part of what I want to do, the reason I'm creating this you know, course on crowdfunding and social media marketing and things like that, is I found that there's a lot of people who are involved in activism or nonprofits or have causes or ideas they want to put out in the world, but they don't understand this other aspect of how you communicate like th- that. And i w- I want to put together a team that puts out content like that. And so part of the goal with this course is to train people such that maybe there's a few of them I could eventually get to come work for me. Um so that's the the goal there. And then there's a uh, I mean, dude, this. I think that's a brilliant idea, the the course to
1: teach people how to do that. Because think of how many, you know, budding directors and writers have great ideas like your idea to cover this this niche topic, but have no idea how to actually formulate
0: that and the cool uh, the cool thing about what I know is I think it works better if you have something that's a little weird and out there and artistic because there's so much advice that's like well make it more commercial and like this is not a topic you would think of you know for for a commercial idea, but I think that there's actually a larger market for that stuff so that's a focus um And then there's like a dozen other ideas. There's like a young adult fantasy novel I want to write. I want to do a project on the issue of neurodiversity, which could be a whole other podcast. Um, I have a potential tangential follow-up idea to this film, but I don't know if I'll get to it. And then 20 billion articles I want to write and 30 billion pieces of content for social media and uh, like 12 other film projects that will require a larger budget. So... Uh, you know, there's a horror film in there too. Like I, I, I want to create, and it's just going to depend on what I can get funding for, and time for, and support for. And there's, still, there's going to be stuff coming out as long as I have the ability to do it.
1: But, Is there any impedance to living in Austin as you do? Uh, do you see yourself, you know, if you want to go, you know, deep into the film world of having to live in LA? Or are we, are we a, a mobile enough society now where you can do what you want to do from there? I'm just curious because I've been in LA for 30 years and lived here for most of that because of an industry that's here and uh, I want to make an escape, but I'm always like, I don't know, can I do what I do elsewhere? I feel like you can.
0: It it just depends what stage of production you're at and where you work. I'm in the independent film world. So there's a sense in which I can do this anywhere. And when you go to shoot, if you're doing, I mean, if you're doing documentary, you can kind of live anywhere. Um, And if you're doing narrative film, then the, the actual filming is probably actually not going to take place in L.A. It's going to be in Atlanta or Vancouver or whatever part of the country you can get it cheaply in. I mean, one of the films that I edited that won an award at the Austin Film Festival was shot in like Danville, Indiana because, and, and when you shoot in a small town like that, they give you lots of free stuff because, oh my God, there's a movie in town. You know, if you could shoot, if you shoot in LA, they want you to pay for every location. And if you shoot there, they're like, oh, you guys would shoot a movie at our diner? Like, do you want us to like keep it open all night for you? Like, what do you, you know, we'll shut it. We'll close it down. We'll give you free food. And it's like, oh, that's great, you know? So uh, I I feel like you can do independent film anywhere. And there's a sense now too, in which I think the, the, people I want to collaborate with, I'm, I'm meeting more and more online. So they'll, they'll see my work and reach out to me. And so, um, especially, especially that social media content stuff. I'm always looking for people to help. And I'm always looking for people to help on this issue. And I'll say too, if after listening to this, it's a topic you want to get involved on, every activist group always needs more volunteers. Every activist group always needs more money. There is, there is, more than enough work to go around. Cool. Awesome. That's,
1: that's good to know. And um, as we come to a close here, I've learned so much about this issue today from you. You're very knowledgeable as I knew you would be. That's why you're the, you're the perfect guy to talk to as I've been wanting to cover this. However, I'm sure you've learned from some other brilliant people yourself. Who are three teachers or teachings that you might be able to point our audience to go learn from as well? So specifically on the topic of circumcision? No, just any any anything, really. I mean, uh, philosophy, uh, anything you think that is exciting to you that's really formed who you are as a person or the topic at hand, sure, it's open.
0: Sure, I'll, I'll do both. I'll do on circumcision and then just life in general. On circumcision, uh, the academic Brian Earp has written a lot on the subject and it's really good. He's uh, studied at Oxford and Yale and is very knowledgeable. If you want something that is both uh, more humorous, more angry, and a little bit conspiratorial at times, I would recommend checking out Eric Klopper's work. He did a, 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 a stage show at Harvard called Sex and Circumcision, A Love Story. And he's Jewish, but he also gets into the stuff about Jewish circumcision that I think is, it's really controversial. I think it might offend some people, even in your audience, but he's a Jewish man expressing his perspective on the issue. So he has some very strong words. Dude, and, dude,
1: dude, real, real quick, something that I didn't put in my notes, but I wanted to ask you as it pertains to that and hold off for your third recommendation. Okay. I saw some crazy YouTube video a little while ago. I think perhaps even before... Yeah, I think it was even before I saw your film and it was just talking about different religious practices and stuff. I don't even know the name, but it was it was pretty hardcore. I mean, almost... Maybe it was kind of anti-Semitic even. Like, I know a lot of stuff gets labeled as that that's not, but it was just kind of like, oh, this is why this religion sucks, basically. Um, and they were talking about how in some of the... Circumcision procedures, how the rabbis would actually like go down orally and suck the blood out. Is that a made up thing or has that happened before? Is that part of the deal Mm -hmm. in certain Orthodox um,
0: procedures? That is real. That's real. And that's called Matiza Pepe. It is uh, literally, it translates to uh, oral suction, I believe. So, in in traditional Orthodox Jewish circumcision, when they perform the procedure, after they cut it off, the moil, which is the ritual Jewish circumciser, will suck blood out of the child's uh, wounded penis. So that's a real thing. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where if you made that up, you would absolutely be accused of anti Semitism. But at the same time, you're also not allowed to criticize it because people will tell you you're anti Semitic for criticizing that or even bringing it up. And in New York, there was a case where a Moyle, a Jewish ritual circumciser, gave a child herpes doing that. So he had a herpes sore on his lip, and then did that to the child, and the child got herpes. And in infants, that can cause death. It's you know, infants are not able to handle a, a serious sexually transmitted disease like that. Um, And if you want some really dark humor on the subject, I I heard someone suggest after hearing that, you know, you have to be careful because when you get circumcised by a moil, you're not just getting circumcised by that moil, you're getting circumcised by everyone that moil's ever been with.
1: Oh, God. Human beings are just so weird. And I'll just say that. I don't care what religion, where you come from. We're weirdos. And I'm including myself in the human race. To me, that's bizarre, but it's just... Like you hear something like that and you go, oh, surely that can't be
0: true. or That doesn't still happen, right? And um, it's just... And and then the New York Health Department tried to regulate it. um, And they said, look, can you at least just get parents to sign a form uh, saying they waive liability and something like this could happen? And the Orthodox community, which is very powerful, said, no, that's our religion. You absolutely can't regulate it. So this is something, this part of the practice still happens? Yeah, it's it's not done, you know. Many, unless the circumcision is done in a religious setting with certain prayers, it's not a, It has no value in Judaism. So there's a lot of Jewish parents who do it in the hospital just because they don't really they're not that religious and they, or they don't understand that their religion that well. Um, and in the Reform traditions or in the less Orthodox versions, it's not done. But in the Orthodox, it's absolutely done that way.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that I am glad I covered that because I had it in my mind to ask you about that in the religious portion of the conversation and in the procedure, uh, procedural portion. So we snuck that in. Okay, mortifying, totally bizarre. I don't get it. Please, people, stop doing shit like this.
0: Uh, who is your third recommendation? So the third I would suggest is Dr. Ronald Goldman, who is a Jewish psychologist who wrote a book called Circumcision, the Hidden Trauma. And he, his book is all about the psychological impact of circumcision. And he also wrote one called The uh, Questioning Circumcision, A Jewish Perspective. So his work, if you really want to go deep on the psychological stuff, he's, he's kind of written the definitive book on it. Um, and... Uh, it's not as much on the healing as much as just here's the data we have on the impact. And he he gets into some speculation in there, and he he very clearly labels it as speculation. He says there's this data we could talk about, but I don't know if that means what it might mean. Um, but if you're interested, I think it's a really it's a good read. And he's done he's done a lot of presentations actually. Um, probably by the time this is out, I'll have the Boston screening of our of our film online, and he did the Q and A there with me, so you can see him answer questions in front of a live audience about this.
1: Oh, great. Great. Cool. That sounds amazing. Um, where do you want to send people to in terms of website, social media, any of that stuff that we'll put in the show notes
0: for you? Circumcisionmovie.com is the website for the film and com is my website. You can find the film on social media at circmovie Movie on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can find me on social media At B.D. Murata, which is just my first two initials and then last name, M-A-R-O-T-T-A. And I'm actually going to be posting a lot more from my personal account, just all of the interviews I've done, things like this, um, public speaking, articles, everything that I can. So those would be the places to follow.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. You guys know the drill listening. Go to LukeStory.com forward slash newsletter, sign up. And every time I do an episode, I will email you all of the links from each episode. So if you want these and ones like it, LukeStory.com forward slash newsletter. Brendan, dude, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, I was, you know, toying with the idea of waiting until I came out to Austin where you live because I'm going to be coming out there in April for Paleo FX and I'm just... I couldn't wait. So thank you for making the time to do it on Skype. And thank you for having a decent microphone and a working internet connection. (laughs) Sometimes like doing a remote is so hard. I'm like, I actually think this one's going to look and sound good. So um, I appreciate all the effort and all the work you're doing, man. You're a, a true hero in my mind. And I look forward to watching what you're up to next.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Well, there you go, folks. As promised in the intro, this was sure to be an episode to get you thinking, right? And I would just like to reiterate, listen, if you're a parent who's made the decision to circumcise your boy, because it seemed like the best thing to do at the time, and you might've listened to this episode and gone like, oh, I screwed up. uh, Listen, no shame, no guilt. We're all doing the best we can. And I'm sure your boy or your boys are gonna turn out to be just fine. I mean, mine was chopped off and I'm a pretty decent person after doing a little work on myself. And if you're someone who listened to this episode and thought, you know what, I'm still glad that I did that to my kid and I'm behind it, then, you know, good for you. That's the beauty of uh, what little freedom we have left in (laughs) in the Western world. So enjoy it while you've got it. And if this was an episode that was meaningful to you, if it kind of opened your eyes to some uh, facts or some points of view that you found to be inspiring or intriguing in any way, I highly encourage you to share this with with as many friends as you can. Uh, This is a great way to support the show and just support some of these fringe topics that I'm beginning to cover more and more. As promised at the beginning of 2019, I really want to, um, you know, it's not like I'm wanting to become uh, controversial just for the sake of doing so, but there's so many things like this issue that I've looked into over the years that are largely ignored, by the mainstream media or even suppressed in many and most cases. And so, uh, while I'm still allowed to, I love to share this information and you can do your part by just turning your friends and family on to uh, a different point of view. If you found it to be valid more than anything, I'd like to thank you for listening I encourage you to subscribe to the show. So you get every episode, including this Friday's bonus show, my, uh, my big talk on uh, self care mastery and then next Tuesday show on parenting with Neil Strauss, uh, both of which I think are going to be equally tantalizing. And I'd also like to thank this week's advertisers. You know, these guys make the show possible. And I know so many of you support our sponsors, and I appreciate that, and they appreciate that. I feel really good about being in a business where Uh, Part of the monetary equation is promoting brands, but I only promote brands that I really believe in and uh, brands that make products or services that I myself either use uh, or have used and fully believe in. And that's my promise to you. And what's great about it for you as the listener is in most cases you get exclusive discounts. So not only do I vet great products and services, I get a discount for you. Uh, They help pay for the expenses of running this here podcast, which by the way, the more professional your podcast gets, the more money it costs to produce and the more episodes you put out too. That's the thing. You know, people, I think when I started, I didn't realize like, oh, this actually costs money. And when I give people kind of a ballpark of my budget to produce the show, you know, people that come to me and say, oh, your podcast is cool. I want to do one. I'm like, great. Here's how much it's going to cost you unless you learn how to do everything yourself. But um, it wasn't my dream in life to be a sound editor. It was my dream in life to have a great podcast and help turn people onto good information. And that costs money. So thank you so much for supporting Organifi. You can find them at Organifi.com forward slash Luke. That is, of course, spelled with an I. Organifi.com forward slash Luke. To get over there and get some of the green powder, the gold powder, the red powder, some of these superfood blends that are delicious and super nutritious, all organic, totally legit, If you use the code LIFESTYLIST, you'll save 20%. If you want to make enough money so that you can afford to buy some of these things, you can get over to Lacey Phillips, a two-time former guest on the show, and her course, tobemagnetic.com forward slash Luke. That is tobemagnetic.com forward slash Luke. Use the code Luke over there and save 10% off these already very affordable courses on how to manifest what you want in your life. Her stuff is legit. It really works. And it's a lot of fun to go through her courses too. And then we've got our friends over at Juve. I was just using the Juve Go upstairs as I prepared these notes in Evernote. I usually do that on my laptop, like chilling on the bio mat, uh, using the Juve Go on a certain, certain body part. You have to listen to my episode on red light therapy, photobiomodulation, and how you can use it to hack your testosterone. Um, anyway, they're way too much. TMI, TMI. But, uh, yeah, you can use the Juve Go, this little tiny device passively on different parts of your body. It's amazing. Now, if you want to get a free gift, you can use the code Luke at checkout. When you go to juve.com forward slash Luke, that's J O O V com forward slash Luke and get your red light therapy on. It's really good for you. feels really good. It's really fun. And, um, You know, Maybe someday if I run into you at one of my events, I'll tell you what you can do with it. Because I'm definitely not going to say it on the show. What? No, but seriously, come hang out with me in Miami, Saturday, March 30th at Sacred Space. I'll be presenting my now infamous High Love Experience Workshop. Just did it here in LA at Rama Venice. And it was insane. We had, I don't know, 50 people who were, I think 49 of them were listeners to the show. So it's really great to have an opportunity to forge in-person, real-life relationships with some of the listeners. And if it's fun for me to do that, it's definitely going to be fun for you. So go to lukestory.com forward slash events. If you're anywhere on the East Coast, down South, come hang out in Miami at Sacred Space, March 30th. Thank you for listening. I'll be back at you this Friday with my self-care rituals recorded live at the Neil Strauss Biohacking Intensive. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by PodcastMasters.net.